0: Our next speaker on a related topic is Gina Neff. Gina is Senior Research Fellow and Associate Professor at the Oxford Internet Institute and the Department of Sociology. Uh, She specialises on the future of work in data-rich environments. She leads a new uh, multinational comparative research project on the effects of the adoption of AI across multiple industries She's an award-winning author of three books and over three dozen research articles on innovation and the impact of digital transformation. Gina. Thank you. I am here to represent all of social science that Alan didn't cover, and and all of the work that we do at OII in 15 minutes. Um, oh, OII had a good representation at the last one. Oh, good. Two so sessions. I'll, I'll cut those slides <laughs> out. Um, I am a sociologist by training, and I'm here um, really to make a call to arms for why we should be studying AI in a particular way, and that's not to negate the Um, my other speakers tonight who are doing fascinating and wonderful topics or all of you who are coming together across this research community in various ways but to to make a call for something I see that's um, not yet part of our discussions about ethics and that's really good to be to talk about users use and the social context now as a sociologist primarily of work in organizations my view on technology has been deeply Um, shaped by how things get um, used in practice. And I'll talk a little bit more about that tonight. Um, We um, have a discourse, it will be no surprise to anyone in the room, that we are talking, when we talk about ethics and AI and future AI, we we talk about fears that get translated um, very well into public discourse about what AI is and isn't. Um, As we'll hear um, from my colleague Rasmus Nielsen um, later, we also have a problem with how the press and the media are talking about AI and who is talking in those discourse. Um, I would argue that we within the academy have uh, an urgent need to help address and prepare and think about that Short term, because you know, as uh, John Maynard Cain said, in the long term we're all dead. Right now, the near-term impact of how artificial intelligence is going to impact society is something that we're not necessarily bringing <clears throat> a toolkit for people to understand. So we're talking in one 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 way about technologies that aren't here yet. That's great. We need to be having those conversations, but we're not we're not helping to prepare. Um, the public. We're not helping to engage around questions. And what what do we need to do? I think we need to get much more um, tangible. Part of the challenge for us as researchers is when we talk about artificial intelligence and machine learning, we're really talking about a coming social infrastructure. And it's that social infrastructure, that social material infrastructure that's helping to shape a whole host of what Carl called second order effects. Um, What will be the effect on jobs? What will be the effect on politics? How will our society be structured? It's those questions that are driving the concern about AI, and and yet as scientists, it's hard for us to get into the nitty-gritty of studying that infrastructure. Now, um, the AI researcher, Stuart Russell, has a a beautiful metaphor about infrastructure and AI, and some of you may have heard this, so forgive me if you, if you have. He says, you know, it's as if we have artificial intelligence, you know, think of, think of people who make artificial intelligence as asphalt engineers. And they're really, really good at making asphalt. And so they just go around saying, you know, your garden, it needs asphalt. That beach over there, asphalt. Um, why That road, it's in the wrong place. Let's put asphalt here instead. In some ways, our policy and technical conversations about expertise in machine learning and AI are being dominated by people who are very good at the engineering, but not necessarily as good. So we, as kind of a broader community, I think need to work on multidisciplinary ways that we can address and redress some of the challenges of how we're gonna have those hard and difficult questions around the normative, political, and distributive questions of how we're going to talk about resources. But that leaves our challenge. If we see these systems, machine learning, artificial intelligence systems, becoming part and parcel of how we run our daily lives without things being visible, with things being black boxed to most people, then how do we as social researchers start to study and understand that? And I think there's a twofold problem that I'll give to you. Now, um, this is from uh, exactly a a year ago this month. I ran a workshop, an expert workshop. um, It was a room not unlike this uh, in Silicon Valley with the uh, researcher from the University of Washington, Jevin West. Now, Jevin runs a course, for those of you who are not native English speakers, um, his course is called Calling BS. And he actually says, as I won't tonight, what BS stands for. But it means to call out, um, to call as wrong, tomfoolery, or outright lies or trickery, um, something that someone has done. And so he has been featured in The New Yorker for this undergraduate course in teaching people how to read statistics, right? Not how to lie with statistics, but how to call BS um, with statistics. we together ran, um, it was a group of 40 experts in the room, some people from academia, some people from industry, some people from advocacy, and we basically said, okay, the rules of the game are this. You have to call, in the first half hour, you have to call BS on AI. Now, this is akin to what Arvind Naranyan has, has called you know, the, the snake oil of AI. Now, we all know it, those of us who are experts, we've seen the cases in which something is called AI and it's an Excel spreadsheet. Or something is called AI, and you know the challenges really are that there was um, some political corruption going on. And so and so that's what this was about. It was about calling out these cases. And let me call your attention. I don't expect you can read what um, these were. So in, in 30 minutes, we got 27 different cases. Um, some of these cases were commonly known challenges of how uh, biased data lead to biased outputs, and that there's some kind of gap between what we think the model is doing and what the data can actually show. So for example, um, Jupiter Medical, IBM Watson for oncology, and a challenge where doctors thought they were looking at a um, real-time diagnostic tool. The diagnostic tool was actually done on synthetic cases. Or Amazon, a famous case of creating a um, hiring algorithm that ends up discriminating against um, people who have anything in their CV that recognizes them as women. So this is a a challenge that we actually now have language for. Right now in Barcelona, the Fairness um, Accountability and Transparency Conference is is launching, is kicking off um, as we speak. And this idea that biased data lead to biased outputs is something that we as researchers now can, we have language for. We can talk about this problem, and the problem has awareness because we've been raising this. The second kind of classification of these problems that were identified by experts was really growing pains. This is, um, we are in a phenomenal period of growth, as as Sir Nigel pointed out, of how um, computing technologies and large corporations are, at a particular moment, leading to an expansion of use cases. And of course, the industrial applications are a little shaky, and we're in a, 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 a relatively novel phase of where this industry is going. Some of that will be worked out over time, growing pains. But it's really these last three that I want to call our attention to, because of the, of the other types of, of challenges, to classify these challenges, um, the third was really a, a kind of mismatched, mismatched expectations that experts or designers have one set of expectations or, or are more sanguine about the possibilities of a particular modeling uh, uh, exercise, but you know the public they just don't understand, or the sales team they just don't understand, or you know the the, the vendor knows but the client doesn't know that there are these difference in, prospect, in expectations. The fourth was really, you know, if we could only fix the perceptions of people about what AI really is, then somehow we could get into a, you know, we would solve and resolve some of these problems. And the fifth was a a kind of bad application, right? There are bad users out there in the world. Um, So good users know how to use predictive policing software in ways that um, is ethical, but, you know, there are bad police departments out there that will use these things in bad ways. So I would say that these three really are about a kind of granularity around use, users, and social context. And from the perspective of the social studies of technology, from the social science of technology, we actually take that as the um, wheelhouse of what we do, so that we never truly think of technologies as separate or separable from how they get used and what their social context is. We've had, and I, I'm going to just speed through this, because this is kind of where I think some of the that near-term, that wonderful um, um, near-term, long-term divide that we have. I think this is kind of where we are. Um, we we know that we have um, ethical challenges with a normative mm-hmm. perspective that have given us a way to talk about the design and the rolling out of AI technologies. but what i would argue is that this kind of notion that we need to bring back the users the uses and the social context for those is really part of what we're missing in some of the conversations about about ethics so let me let me bring in three of those perspectives from that world of research um the first and this is a a long standing in the sociology of technology this is a long standing idea um, that technologies are never finished by the designer. They're always finished in their use. They're open to interpretation, to modification and adaptation. And sometimes those those changes stick, right? Sometimes they're durable and they actually influence the long term trajectory of the technology. And sometimes they're just hacks. And the trick is then figuring out when, what, which, which one is going on. The second, and again, this is a 40 year finding, right? This isn't isn't new, it's certainly not mine. Um, But that new technologies always become an occasion at work for reasserting and asserting power and expertise, right? So so we never just plop new technologies in and the boss says, go, go do it. Um, We always have these kind of opportunities to negotiate and renegotiate. And what we've seen is that those can really diverge pretty radically, even with the same set of tools, even in the same kinds of organizations. And the third is a, is a conversation that I am um, uh, really a, a part of and, and kind of reimagining on what we call technological affordances, right? So when people approach a technology and I and I use affordance here, uh, it, both in a way akin to Don Norman's notions of affordance, but also uh, from a sociological perspective. Um, when we when a user approaches a, a technology, you know, they're, they 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 see things that they can do with it, right? That's what we think of as as a technological. They are afforded certain opportunities, but the research that's coming out now about affordances really suggests how. People, people's ability to take up technological affordances are deeply shaped by their social position. And the work that my team's doing is really deeply shaped by where they are in their social, organizational, and institutional context. So I, again, the technology doesn't just matter. It's where the user is that deeply, deeply matters. So let me give you a concrete example. Literally, this is concrete. Um, I've spent a decade working in digitization and construction. And this is a picture from my field, one of my field sites. This picture is an incredible accomplishment in and of itself that unionized workers would accept um, what they saw as potentially disruptive technology into the field site. Now, when we started this project, um, we, had a, we created a computer folder as you all do that said um, BIM hype. This tool is called Building, informo- building Information Modeling or BIM. And so we had our hype folder and we put everything in there. And literally everything that everyone was being told in the trade press about the tool you're looking at was this would completely and utterly revolutionize how architects, engineers, and builders work together. Um, Fast forward a decade, I am privileged to have spent a decade on this project. Um, You know, we kind of show um, in part um, something that we know from sociology of technology, that the mental models and the structural elements, those rewards, norms, and cultures of organizations, really fundamentally shape how the technologies work. And I don't mean theoretically like how they work. I mean how they actually work in practice is as much a part of those mental models as it is um, how people are, are told or forced. So uh, the the uptake of this of this tool was nowhere near as transformative as the industry hype said that it would be. Um, let me give you another, uh, from a different point of view, that doesn't take a decade, um, a paper that I have um, been talking about quite a bit, um, written by colleagues at Stanford and Cornell, Jakish et from Kai from last year. Um, so what I love about this paper is it's a granular paper of lifting the algorithmic lid, lifting the black box lid off of a study to help get people's perceptions of what is going on with AI. Now, they discover what they call the replicant effect. That is, when you show people Airbnb host profiles, you can ask them in an experimental setting, who do you trust? And then when shown at profiles, again, saying some of these are written by AI and some of these are written by people, they find trust collapse. And that should worry many of us because we are used to understanding how people interact within particular settings, but we're not quite yet there in understanding how the introduction of artificial technologies, technologies transparently identified as quote unquote AI, impacts the social organization that people have around them. So that's Jake Ish um, et al. 2019 from Kype. So um, in my one minute left, um, he- here's kind of my manifesto for where I think we need to go. We need many more case studies. The examples we have of AI failures, um, the examples we have of ethical problems are getting a little stale. We need to map, track, and compare and measure these changes of people's practices with AI across multiple settings and across multiple countries. We need to identify elements of social infrastructure and social structure that really serve as levers for responsible use. So, so, so in addition to the kind of ethical projects that we have going on, we need to think about what are those organizational routines that might help us get to better AI. We need to measure how people are responding to AI systems, um, including um, existing social norms, conventions, heuristics, and social organization. Um, and then, I think we really need to be doing more comparative work. Our work right now um, overwhelmingly is dominated in the AI leading countries, and we have very little work that goes across or with emerging countries. So, uh, let me give you just um, kind of my set of questions. I really, um, I developed um, this question with Jack Chu and Madeline Claire Ellish in a paper we did um, this, this autumn. Um, What and whose goals are being achieved or promised through what structured performance using what division of labor under whose control at whose expense? So you'll notice this is very much a question asking about what are the social impacts of any AI or machine learning system. Um, And finally, my kind of guiding principles, this is is for me, and I'm just speaking for me here. I really think it's critical that we need to be expanding Um, our knowledge and ethical capacity outside of the communities of experts in science and technology. It's critical for society at this particular moment. We need to participate with the communities of engineering, uh, data science, and AI communities, um, both in research spheres, but also in commercial spheres. Again, that's that's a little bit of a dividing line, but I think it's critical for getting problems solved. And then finally, and perhaps most urgently from my perspective, is You know, I really think we have to be looking at AI on the ground, um, and we have to be looking at these questions of how AI is being used in its social context in order to actually understand what is developing and what's going on. Thank you.